Well, it was just the other day that I came across an older episode of that show, Undercover Boss. And if you haven't seen it, the premise of that show is the CEO of the company goes undercover, they pretend to be a new employee at the company, and they do so for an entire week. This gives them the opportunity to see how things are being run, how people are being trained and treated through a completely different set of eyes. In the episode that I found myself watching earlier this week, the CEO was a man who owned a chain of sporting goods stores in the northeastern part of our country. And during his seven days undercover, he was being trained by a tremendous young woman. She was skilled at what she did. She was kind, conscientious, always on time. She was engaged in training the new employees, always ready to take questions and give answers. She was about perfect, the exact kind of person you would want working for you. And one day near the end of the time in which he's undercover, he's talking with her back in the storeroom and she simply asks, why did you apply for this job? And kind of on the spot, he comes up with a little story about how he's hard on his luck, how his previous company had failed and he's just trying to get by until he comes up with a new plan. She begins to empathize with him and encourage him. She begins to tell him that things are going to get better if he'll just work hard and stick with this job. And he asked her how she knew she could say those things. She said, me and my three children are so grateful for my job at this company. Every day, I know my life is getting better, even though for the past two years, we've been living in a homeless shelter. The CEO was absolutely shocked when he heard her say that. The opportunity for him to go to the lowest level of his company and see with his own eyes that someone as great of a worker as her was struggling to get by changed everything for him. He had put himself in her shoes and he said, it was really profound, he said that he would go home at night and he couldn't sleep thinking about her and her three kids having to go back to the shelter. He changed his philosophy of how he ran his company. He increased the wages of his employees. He started paying for financial advisors to come and offer financial education to those who didn't know how to you know, set up a regular budget. And he took that young woman, he gave her a promotion, he gave her a huge raise, and he also gave her a check to make sure that she and her children would never have to go back to that homeless shelter again. He was changed when he put himself in their shoes, not looking from top down, but instead from the bottom up. What we are going to see in our passage this morning is that David desperately needed a different perspective on his own life because of how hard his heart had become. And so friends, with that in mind, let's stand now for the reading of God's word. We are only going to read the first six verses, and I would challenge you not to read ahead. Most of you might know the story, but it's worth it to wait if you can. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city. 
the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herd to prepare it for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, as we now look at this great confrontation between Nathan and David, we ask that you would change our hearts, that you would work in us as you did in David. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just briefly, very briefly, very quickly remind you of the context with which we're in in the life of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David has succumbed to the pains of incremental sin. David has not gone to war as he should. It was springtime and kings were supposed to go. Maybe he's feeling entitled. Maybe he's feeling a little bit privileged of himself. He decides that he's earned a bit of a break. And so he's lounging around in his palace while his men have gone to fight for him. And he begins to make compromises one after another. After a full day of being lazy and slothful, he's gotten up, he's walked around on his roof, he's looked down and he's seen that the beautiful Bathsheba is bathing herself. He begins to lust. He decides to inquire of who she is. He has her brought to his home and he takes her for himself and then he sends her away. Not long after, Bathsheba sends word to David, two words in Hebrew that really packed a punch. She sent word saying, I am pregnant. And David in that moment, rather than confessing his sin, rather than kind of letting it be exposed and going to the Lord, he begins to manipulate the situation. He tries to take control of it. And through many different plots and schemes and plans, he finally ends up having Uriah put to death in the heat of battle. And David, when he thinks his sin is kind of finally behind him, after he's committed adultery and committed murder, he marries Bathsheba. She gives birth to the son. And David thinks everything's been swept under the rug. But then there's those ominous words at the end of chapter 11 that say, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Remember, David is supposed to be the man after God's own heart. But man, has he fallen from the days of being that young shepherd boy who trusted that Yahweh would defeat his enemies no matter what. Incremental sin is extremely dangerous because as each compromise is made, the harder David's heart becomes. 
the harder his conscience becomes. And so David has done this terrible thing, but the good news is this, David is not going to be left alone to his sinful destruction. The Lord sends to David a prophet and a friend. Second Samuel picks up in chapter 12 with Nathan the prophet coming to see David. And Nathan the prophet would have definitely been a friend. We saw him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when the covenant was made between David and the Lord. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan is the one who's kind of administering it. And so David would have known him. He would have liked him. He would have been happy that he was coming on this day. And Nathan does something that was very normal at this time. He brings a case to the king to ask for judgment. This was common practice. And he does it so perfectly. He presents the case. We just read it. There's a rich man. There's a poor man. The rich man has an absurd amount of sheep. He has all he could ever need. He's got flocks and herds galore. And then there's the poor man who has one little ewe lamb. He paid for it with all that he had. He raised it with his children. He fed it from his plate. He let it drink from his cup. He would let it lie in his arms at night. It became like one of his children. He loved it. But then one day when a visitor comes years later, when a visitor comes, the rich man, he takes that ewe lamb instead of one of his many, many, many sheep and he slaughters it up and he serves it to his guest. And you can imagine the scene, if you're putting yourself in the shoes of David, you can imagine exactly how he must have felt because when he hears the injustice, he bursts out with rage. David knew exactly what it was like to be that poor man. He had grown up poor. He was nothing but a little shepherd boy, the youngest of his brothers. I guarantee you when he was out in the wilderness of Israel, he would have fed those sheep from his hands. He would have let them drink from his cup. There would have been cold nights in the wilderness where he laid down with them for warmth. He was the one who would go and stand between lions and bears to protect them. And he certainly would have known what it was like to go and find one when it had gone astray. Or lost. David knew exactly how the poor man felt. And when he heard that the rich man had done this thing without any pity, David is enraged at the injustice. And so he cries out, he invokes the name of Yahweh God Almighty. He says, Before Yahweh the Lord, this man deserves to die. He should be put to death right now. And he must pay fourfold for what he has done. David has no idea how hard his heart has become. And it's in this exact moment that Nathan has him right where he wants him. I like how one scholar puts it, Nathan had his sword within an inch of David's heart before David even knew that he was holding one. This little parable, this little case, this little story is being held up to David as a mirror so that David might see his sin exposed. So look at verses seven through nine. Just like Bathsheba gave two words in Hebrew that bore a ton of weight, I am pregnant. Nathan says two words to David. He says, David, you are the man. 
You're not the poor man. You are the rich man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, you anointed, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Look at how wealthy David is. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, David, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite. You've struck him down with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. This is it. David's sin is completely exposed. It's before the Lord, it's before Nathan, and it's before David. And all of us can relate to what David must have been feeling like in this exact moment. Anytime that we have said something or done something that we immediately regretted afterwards, that we knew we shouldn't have said because it hurt or harmed someone we love, that is a gut-wrenching feeling. There's nowhere for David to turn, nowhere for David to flee to or hide. It's right there in front of him. And Nathan doesn't just stop there. He continues to pile on in the sense that he lists out what the consequences are for David's sin. Look at verses 10 through 12. There are consequences that are far-reaching for David's sin that are gonna go beyond anywhere he thought they would have gone. Nathan says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. You see, when if we just stop for just a second, when he, when he gave his judgment about how the man should die, he didn't realize that that judgment was being turned back in on him. Four of David's sons are gonna die and a big reason for it is this sin. That's part of the consequence for his sin. It goes on to say, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, meaning out of your own children. I will take your wives from before your eyes and I will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You know, just a few chapters later, this exact thing does happen. Absalom, David's own son, when he is trying to usurp the throne, when he is trying to rebel against his father, he conquers the city of Jerusalem and he goes in and in broad daylight, he takes David's wives and does what David did with Bathsheba for all to see. The consequences of his sin are absolutely horrible. And the question that we should be asking is how is David going to respond? We really need to be wondering in our heart of hearts, how is he going to respond to the fact that Uriah was truly the poor man whom David has wronged? Think about Uriah's situation for a minute. I mean, Nathan does such a good job of establishing the case. Uriah had one wife. David had many. Uriah, when he was brought home from 
war to try to, you know, David's plotting to try to get Uriah to sleep with his wife to cover up her sin. He wasn't allowed, or he wouldn't allow himself to sit at the table and eat with his wife, to sit at the, you know, to sit and lounge with his wife on the couch and drink the wine. He wouldn't go and lay down with her. But that was normally what he would do because that was his loved one. That was his little you lamb. And David, who had all of his wives and who had all of his wealth and who had all of his power, with a hard heart and a hard conscience, took her from him for himself. Nathan sets it up so perfectly. And so David's now seeing his sin. It's out in the open. There's a mirror for him to look at. And the question is, how will David respond? Will he be like Saul? King Saul, when he was confronted for his sin, he tried to deflect and blame shift and lie and wriggle his way out of it until finally he was so cornered that he apologized for having been caught. Or will he be as the Proverbs say, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's never too late to repent for sin. And what happens next is what makes David the man after God's own heart. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, with two words in Hebrew. So remember, I am pregnant, I have sinned, or I am pregnant, you are the man, and now I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. With those two simple words, David lays it out. It's not simplicity. It's not just, I'm sorry that I got caught. It really is saying with great depth, and with great pain, as our confession of faith laid out what true repentance looks like for us, David is seeing, he knows, he's grieved over, and hates his sin. He's no longer trying to hide it or deflect it. He's not denying it or rationalizing it in any way. He's not accusing others for it or bursting out in anger. He is simply and honestly taking the responsibility for what he has done. And he's absolutely broken by it. David is truly repentant for his sin. And the thing that got him there was that little parable. The thing that got him there was seeing things through different eyes. Putting himself in someone else's shoes. And that is a powerful principle that needs to be put to work in our own lives. When we take time to personalize our sin, when we take time to stop and think about the ways in which it might affect or hurt others, then there can be real powerful change that the Holy Spirit works in us. And so I think of a great example from a movie that came out back in 1995. It was called A Time to Kill. It starred Matthew McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson. It's taking place during a time of great racial tension in the South. And Samuel L. Jackson, kind of the premise of the movie, he's got a 10-year-old daughter, a beautiful little girl. And one day when she's walking home from getting the groceries for the family, two white men pull up and they commit 
horrendous, horrible, violent crimes against her body. And it becomes clear to Samuel L. Jackson that the two men are going to get off scot-free. And so he takes justice into his own hands. And he kills those two men in cold blood and soon finds himself on trial for murder. And as the movie's progressing, he hires Matthew McConaughey to be his lawyer. And as, it, as it's laid out, it's clear he is not going to receive a fair trial. He does not have a jury that is really made up of his peers. And even before the case is laid out, everyone has determined that he is guilty. On the night before the closing arguments, Matthew McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson are sitting in the jail cell. And Samuel L. Jackson, like in exasperation, says to his lawyer, they need to see the case through my eyes. They need to see the case differently. He says, Matthew, what would it take? What would you need to hear in order to believe and see the truth for yourself? If you were in that juror's box, what would it take? Matthew McConaughey goes in the next day, utterly changed by that little statement. And rather than giving his regular little speech that he would give, he asks everyone in the jury to close their eyes. And he begins to slowly, it's really, it's really hard to watch. He begins to slowly, with some gruesome detail, ask them to imagine exactly what had happened to that 10-year-old girl. And when he comes to the very, very end, he asks everyone, now imagine that she was white and the air is sucked out of the room. I mean, you can imagine if you're watching this movie, even just talking about it, kind of, you feel the strain and the tension. All of a sudden, it became personal for that jury. No longer did they view this as a senseless act of murder, but they saw it as an act of justice. And so they acquitted Samuel L. Jackson of his crimes. And he got to go on and live his life with his family. But the point of that little illustration is to show that there is power in making our sin personal. When we, when we allow it to be abstract, when we don't think about it in real and sensitive ways, that's when it becomes easy to fall into incremental sin like David did. So this might touch a little bit of a nerve, but it has for me all week. I'll share some personal examples that I think are helpful for thinking of ways to make your sin personal. I remember what it was like when I was still in seminary. How easy it was for me to come and sit in a worship service or in a Bible study or to sit in a class and hear a teacher teaching and in my pride and in my arrogance think that I could do a better job. Not only that, I would hear them start bumbling and fumbling over words and I would just scoff. I might even lean over to a friend, I hate to admit, in my sinful heart and mock that person. Sometimes I still may want to do that. So how do I personalize my sin? Obviously, I've stood up here a number of times now. I've stood up here a number of times now and some sermons have gone well and some have not. 
And I know what it's like when you start to get that bead of sweat and things aren't going exactly how you practiced or planned. You lose your spot or you start stumbling over your words. All of a sudden, I become very sympathetic. All of a sudden, I realize and think about the ways in which you have been patient with me. You've been encouraging to me. You've been kind to me. You've let me learn. And my sin is before me and I feel convicted. I feel convicted and all of a sudden now my heart no longer wants to go down that road when I hear someone struggling. Instead, it wants to be sympathetic. It wants to hold the old man off and put on the new. Another example. I know what it's like to have worked a very long and hard day and feel entitled to come home and maybe have a little rest. To think to myself, I have worked very hard. I want to come home and sit in silence and watch some fly fishing videos on YouTube. That's what I like to do to relax. And so when I come home and my precious, sweet, beautiful, as you've all seen, wonderful little monsters are going crazy, I don't think about how maybe Courtney's had a hard day. I get frustrated and maybe I snap. Maybe I'm upset that things aren't done the way they should be or things aren't as clean as I would like or dinner's not quite ready, whatever it may be. But if I would stop for a minute and slow down and think about it, maybe on my drive home, think about what it was like just last week when I had the kids for only three hours and it was absolute chaos. You know what Courtney did when she came home? Immediately tried to take things off my plate. Immediately tried to give me a break and rest. You don't think that's going to convict my heart about my sinful responses when I'm a little bit frustrated and feeling entitled? Beloved, if David, if David would have slowed down for just a minute and thought about his wife Abigail and put himself in Uriah's shoes and thought, how would I feel if there was a king who was looking down from his palace roof and saw my wife and took her for himself? Maybe there would have been a governor on his heart to help him to stop from sinning and live unto righteousness. There is power in making our sin personal. It applies in any way with any sin. We need to be a people who are slow to act, ready to listen and ready to think, willing to be like David who receives this rebuke in humility and in patience. We need to be a people who are developing consciences and hearts that are soft to the Lord and the things that he would do, sensitive to our own sin. Well, we'll end with this. We'll end on a high note because David gets to end on a high note. After he has said and confessed, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan says some of the most powerful words that any sinner needs to hear. The Lord has put away your sin. He's put it away. It's gone. You're no longer going to see it. It's no longer going to be brought up to you. 
Psalm 103 puts it like this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our transgressions from us. Real repentance means real forgiveness. We have been washed clean and are white as snow because we have been washed in the precious, righteous, perfect blood of the Lord's little ewe lamb who was slain for us. Our Lord Jesus is so wonderful and is so forgiving. Rest in that, my friends. We give all glory to him. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for the way in which you sent Nathan into David's life, that he wouldn't be devoured by his sin, but instead he would come in repentance, seeing it for what it is. And we pray that you would make that true in us, that your spirit would help us to see our sin not in an abstract way, but in a personal way so that we might come in repentance and receive real forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.